0: Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. We're continuing our walk through the book of Acts in this part 33 of Pastor Jason's series. And today Jason is looking at Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Join us now in the sermon entitled, Changed by Christ, and turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Here's Jason.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Jason, and welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. We are continuing our walk through the book of Acts. And today we are arriving at what is probably known throughout all of Christendom, throughout all of history, the most famous salvation story, the most famous testimony. Many, many people know the the salvation story of Saul of Tarsus. And as as I was preparing this week, my mind kept going back to different testimonies that, that I've heard over the years. And I kept being reminded of one in particular when I was in my first year of college and I was working at a Christian houseboat camp sunshine ministries and on the sacramento delta and each week a, a different person that was working at the camp would share their testimony and there was one in particular who gave his testimony several times throughout that summer and his testimony was just riveting and powerful why because he was jewish and he started attending a youth group when he was in high school And he attended at first just having fun getting to know people and then he started hearing the gospel over and over and over again. And the kindness and the grace of the Lord overtook him and, and he professed faith in Christ, trusted Christ as his savior. But he knew that if he went home and told his parents about this, that most likely they would disown him. And so he kept it a secret. And for an entire year, he he kept it a secret. He'd go to youth group once a week by sneaking out of his bedroom window and then coming back. And he did this for an entire year. And and finally, the Lord convicted him and said, you need to tell your parents. And so he came home from youth group that night and he told his parents, not knowing exactly what was going to be his fate, he got up the next day as he normally did and went to, to school. He was a senior in high school. Came home that afternoon after finishing school and all of his belongings were on the front grass of his house. He thought, well, I'll go inside and say goodbye to my family. And as he walked up and tried to use his key, it wouldn't work because they had changed all the locks. And he could hear his mother sobbing inside the house. And he went to live with a family from the church. And periodically, he would see his family at the grocery store and here and there. And, and yet, nobody would communicate with him. And this was, I believe, three years after this point. And he said that still to that day, he had not been reconciled to his family. And I don't know about you, but when I hear a, a testimony like that, it not only does it grip my heart, but to be completely honest... I I, I kind of compare it with my own testimony. And I say, Well well actually my testimony is kind of boring compared to that one. Right? And I and I have this way of and and I think all of us do this. We we almost look at testimonies as some sort of movie and we rate them. Right? Oh man, that was a really good one. Oh that that one was yeah, not so good. And and I believe what happens is we, we get things all mixed upside down, turned upside down. And what we do is we end up thinking that the testimony is all about that particular person, as if he is the main character when he is not the main character. Christ is the main character, and Christ is the one who is pursuing us. And in essence, that's what all of our testimonies are about. The fact that Christ pursues us, and that is what we're going to see this morning. This morning. We're going to see it in vivid color. In fact, I don't believe there's hardly any testimony that you're going to hear that's even going to hold a candle to what we are going to see in the conversion of Saul and what I've entitled this morning, Changed by Christ, for that is what happens to this man. And as we open up God's Word, and please turn to Acts chapter 9 with me, We're going to be looking at verses one to nine as we open his word. And as we look at this this morning. I, I want us to consider just the importance of this particular account. Because unlike so many other times in God's word where it clearly depicts when somebody is saved and gives us an account. It's not generally mentioned again and again and again. But in this case, in in the case of Saul of Tarsus and him being saved by the Lord Jesus, it is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. First, it's mentioned by by Luke here in chapter 9 from his account. But we're going to see later on in in chapter 22 and in chapter 26 that, that the Apostle Paul himself refers back to this day. Gives us a little bit more insight into exactly what happened. But the fact that it is mentioned three times reveals to us just how important this is. And and Paul himself reveals how important this is by by not just being recorded in the book of Acts and pointing to this day, but in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he refers to this point. Revealing to us just how important this is. And yet I, I don't want us to miss the significance but I also don't want us to to over-apply it. Because as I've said since we started the book of Acts, there is so much good truth for us to gleam. But there are things within the book of Acts that are not the norm. This is not normal, what we're going to see this morning. In fact, I, I would just take a guess that of all of us here this morning, that none of us heard a... Heard our name called out in Aramaic when the Lord saved us. I I, I would take another guess that none of us had a heavenly light shine all around us when we were saved. I would take another guess and say, none of you were walking on the road to Damascus when the Lord saved you. And so there, there are many things where we can look at this and say, no, this is exceptional. No, this is particular for Saul. And yet there are other things where I believe we should look at this and we should be encouraged that we could see our story unfolded in the story of Saul. Why? Because we, like Saul, we heard the truth of Jesus and we responded. If we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We, like Saul, we've been told by His Word how we are to live. And and finally, like Saul, we've surrendered our very lives to Christ. Christ. Asking him what we should do with our lives and then desiring to do what he has called us to do. So let's look at this amazing account in Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your all-sufficient word We thank you for the salvation account of Saul. And we recognize, Lord, that without your help, that we too, like the men traveling with Saul, we're going to miss this. We're going to miss you. We're going to miss seeing you. We're going to miss hearing from you. And we ask this morning that you would use your word to allow us to see you, to allow us to hear you, and to allow us to rejoice in your wonderful grace in saving us. Just... As you saved Saul. So use your word now. To prick down into our souls. To cause us to. See you in all your glory. And all of your splendor. That you might be honored. That you might be lifted high Lord Jesus. Above all others this morning. In Jesus name. Amen. So in this account, what we are going to see, as I've said, we're going to see three qualities of Saul's salvation, which are really true for all believers, and so we can see ourselves in the salvation of Saul if the Lord has indeed called us to Himself, we have trusted Him as our Lord and Savior. The first thing that we're going to see is is that Saul was contending with Christ, and and we're going to see that in verses one to two very plainly, very simply. And we've already seen this revealed to us in the book of Acts. Then we're going to see the amazing aspect of colliding with Christ. We're going to see, actually more accurately, Christ colliding with Saul in verses 3-6. to And then finally we're going to see confounded by Christ in verses 7-9. to And I believe if we think about it, if we look back at the time when Christ saved us, that we all have this this time where, where we are confounded. We cannot believe that Christ saved us and that we have been entered into His glorious kingdom and that we have been given His grace. So today what we're going to see is a man forever changed by Jesus when he comes face to face with Jesus. And the first thing that we see is this. That Saul was contending with Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him in the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we, again we see a transition where Luke is now shining his light back on this man Saul. And we know where we left Saul back in chapter 8. After the, the murder of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, wh- what was Saul's perspective? Saul's perspective was all about one thing. All Saul could eat, breathe, live, and think about was going after Christians, was pursuing Christians, was persecuting believers. And that totally consumed him. It wasn't enough for, for Saul to just stop the spread of Christianity. He wanted to eradicate it off of the face of the earth. Get rid of any residual effects of this thing called the way. This crazy sect in his mind. And yet as we consider this, I don't believe the depiction of, of Saul is really much different than what we've already seen. What we saw in Acts eight three was... Saul depicted as, as someone who was going and destroying the church. And if you remember that, that word was, was also used in the Old Testament in Psalm 80.13. And it had the idea of a, of a wild boar going into a garden and destroying it. Or of soldiers going into a city and destroying that city. That that is the destruction that Saul had in his mind for Christ's church. And that is what he is bent on. That is what occupies everything about him. And now here again, we see in, in, in the first verse here, the, the first couple of phrases, that what is he doing? He's, he's still breathing threats and murder. I, I believe that's giving us that same picture of a wild boar who is panting and snorting and going after something. And, and, and that's where Saul is. And if that is indeed the picture that Luke is trying to paint, and if that is indeed where Saul is at, it, it makes his salvation even more, even that much more significant. Why? Because he goes from being this wild animal, this wild beast going after Christ's church, to a sheep following his shepherd. And then and then finally to, to a shepherd himself looking after Christ's sheep in all of the churches, as we will see, as Christ sends him as a missionary, perhaps the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. It it would seem that in this depiction of of, of Saul and, and where he's at, that he actually believed that he could stop the spread of Christianity, that he could stop Christ's church from expanding, from reaching out further and further. And no doubt he thought, okay, he'd done it. That what he did in Jerusalem was enough to stop it. But then what does he hear? He hears that there's actually glimmerings of something going on further. Possibly out to Damascus. And so he decides in his mind, okay, yes, if I can get to Damascus, which which was a great city in that day, a, a city of Syria that, that had many, many Jewish people. But it was also a hub that would then go off into the Roman world. And and he thought, oh, if I can get there and stop this before it spreads, then that will be it with this sect. With these Christians, with these people of the way. And he thought, oh yes, maybe I I can stop this. And you have to think about what was motivating Saul. Why, Why was he so bent against this particular group. And I would say that it all revolves around this, God's Word. That it all revolves back to what we heard about Stephen. Why? Because what was Stephen all about? What were they saying that Stephen was doing? They were saying that Stephen was preaching in such a way that he was against Moses, he was against the temple, and he was against the Word of God. And these are things for, for Saul the Pharisee that he would have held in very high regard. To such a high extent that even when his, his long-time teacher Gamaliel stands up and says, no, let's just leave these guys alone, that's not enough for Saul. He says, no, I'm not going to leave them alone. Actually, I'm going to go and I'm going to hunt down each one of them. And if it needs to go further than Jerusalem, that is fine. I will go north because that is the direction of Damascus from Jerusalem. And so that is what he intends to do and, and he must reason somewhere in his, in, in the back recesses of his mind. Okay, if I can just go here and stop it there, that'll be it. But do you remember what we saw last week? Do you remember where Jesus ends up leading Philip? First he leads him to Samaria, and interestingly enough, do you know where Saul has to pass through if he leaves Jerusalem and goes to Damascus? He has to pass right through Samaria, and he's there after Philip. So no doubt this is something that infuriates him even more. If he wasn't already very, very upset, now he is fit to be tied, and he probably cannot wait to get to Damascus and do his job. But God, at the same time, is working. Christ is expanding His church, and He's doing it in a way that Saul would never even consider. Because Saul doesn't think about going south, which is exactly where Jesus led Philip. When Jesus meets this Ethiopian eunuch, He's heading south. He's going to Africa. That is not anywhere that Saul is thinking about going. And what Saul doesn't know is that he cannot stop Christ. And and what's even greater than this is that as Saul is pursuing all of these believers, all these Christians, and he's chasing after him, do you know what Christ is doing? Christ is pursuing him. Christ is chasing after Saul. And as we're about to see, Christ is seen as colliding with Saul. Or Saul colliding with Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. So he's on the way. He's got these letters that give him the authority to basically use the brute squad that's traveling with him to go into these synagogues and grab any of these people from the, the sect called the Way, these believers in Jesus. Shackle them up and then take them back to Jerusalem where they can stand trial and they can be killed. And this is what happens. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We we must understand that, that this trip from Jerusalem to Damascus was not like a three-hour hike. This was a six-day journey of, of some 150 miles. And we know from the way that Luke pens it that this is now towards the end of that journey. Probably day six. Probably to that place to where maybe they could actually see the walls around Damascus. And I would think that, that Saul has been talking about this moment. Oh, when I get into Damascus. And I'm going to get those guys. And all those that are on my side, they're going to be rejoicing. he's probably picturing in his mind how great this almost like a triumphal entry for Saul will be going into Damascus. And yet we see that that Christ had other plans. That Christ knew exactly when this was all going to happen. And the way that it says it happened, that as He was approaching, and the Greek lets us know that it's not so much this long journey that's in view, that's in focus, but everything that's in focus, everything that this is pointing to is this particular time, right here when this thing happens. Really what happened the five days before does not matter. It's not significant. What's totally significant is right here, right now, what is going to happen to him. And suddenly, again, this this talks over and over again about the suddenness of this moment. This this was not something that Saul was waiting for. And suddenly a light from heaven. This doesn't mean the sun. This means a light from heaven shining right here, right now, not just on top of his head, all around him. How can a light do that? The only way it can do that is if this is God doing this. And what does the light represent? The light signifies the glory, the greatness, the grandeur of God. And then we see as a result, instantly, he falls to the ground with suddenness. I wonder at this point if Saul actually fell to the ground and was waiting for Thunder. You know, having lived in Papua New Guinea and and seen lightning, and, and oftentimes, sometimes, the lightning and the thunder comes exactly at the same time. And because it's so close, the thunder is strong. And I wonder if that's what Saul was thinking. Oh, maybe that's what this is. And so as he's on the ground, perhaps he's waiting. He's waiting for that thunder, so that that's what he's listening for. But that is not what he hears. What he hears is the very voice of God. And what does this voice say? Interestingly enough, it says his name. But it doesn't just say his name once. It says his name, he says his name twice. Saul, Saul. Why didn't he just say his name once? Because there's significance in the fact that he uses his name twice. If we had time, we could look back at another time when Jesus does the same thing to someone else. And he does this with Mary and Martha. During the time when, when Martha tells Jesus, oh please tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, what? Martha, Martha, your sister has chosen right. What was he doing? He was rebuking her, but he was doing it in a very intimate and personal way. I believe that's why he says his name twice. Because for one, he is going to strongly rebuke him. But he's also letting him know that this is a personal address, a personal way of him speaking to just Saul. Because Jesus wants to convict Saul. He wants to bring him to the end of himself. And allow godly sorrow to bring him to repentance And and then he says this too. Why are you persecuting me? And I know when you hear this word, you naturally think, oh yes, persecution. That's where somebody beats on someone for their own religious belief. They hurt them. That's what their thought is. But there's more to this word than that. There's movement behind this word. It doesn't mean just to do something hostile to someone. It's literally to run after, to chase after, to pursue, to harass someone because of their beliefs, to follow with haste and intensity in order to catch up with them for hostile purposes. What is he doing? He is pursuing Christ. And and look at how he says it. He says, Why are you persecuted? Why are you pursuing me with this hostile? thought. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my body? Why are you persecuting my brothers, my sisters? He says, why are you persecuting me? Don't miss the significance behind this statement. Christ's church that comprises all believers all over the world is totally and inescapably linked with him and he with us to do harm to the one is to do harm to the other whatever believers are going through christ identifies it and takes it as his own why because he is truly our sympathetic high priest do you know that that from this point on is, is the apostle paul as saul turns into the apostle paul and writes many of his epistles Do you know what one of the major themes in most of his epistles is? In Christ, the fact that believers are united in Christ. And where did he learn that? He learned that right here. And he recognizes that the ravaging that of the church that Saul is doing is a ravaging upon Jesus himself. That the beatings that the apostles received that we saw earlier were beatings upon Jesus himself. And the blows that hit Stephen from those rocks were blows that hit Christ. And as a result, how does Saul respond? Look at verse 5. And he being Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I wonder if Saul asked this question, if if actually he kind of had an inkling of what the answer would be. But perhaps he, he already started to get it. That he started to recognize, oh, wow, this is the Lord. Or perhaps it was just through fear and terror that, that he said the things that he said. But what we can know for certain is that he knew that he was speaking to God. And we know that because of the word that he uses. Where he says, who are you, Lord? That word is kurios in the Greek. It's master, it's creator. It's the sovereign one over. And then Jesus says, I am, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We'll look at this later, but when we get to Acts chapter 26, verse 14, we're going to see that actually Jesus says more than this to him. He actually says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you Saul, to kick against the goads. And this verb used here, to kick, literally means to prick or to sting. Something was pricking and, 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 and stinging the mind of Saul. Something just kept going on and kept going after him over and over and over again. And I believe it all stems back to Stephen and what he saw from Stephen, what he heard from Stephen. Because Saul had questions that he kept struggling with and the Lord is now revealing to him the answer to all these questions. Saul is faced right here with the reality that what Stephen said, what the apostles have been preaching and and what what Saul has been hearing for these last so many months is true. That Jesus of Nazareth is alive. That Jesus of Nazareth is God. And what... Stephen's final sermon could not do. Convince Saul that Jesus was raised from the dead. This encounter does by God's wonderful grace. It's proof and it's absolutely convincing. And yet even in this, what's interesting is is that in all the accounts, and and whether we were looking at chapter 9 here or 22 or or 26 in in the book of Acts, what we're not going to see... Is someone giving him the gospel? We're going to see him meet a man named Ananias next week. And and as he goes to Ananias, Ananias does lots of things for Saul. We're going to see him greet Saul. We're going to see the Lord use him to actually... Remove his blindness. We're going to see Ananias baptize him. We're going to see Ananias welcome him into Christ's church. But what we're not going to see is Ananias or anyone else give him the gospel. Why is that? Because God's word says that God himself gave him the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1 verses 5 to 16, it clearly states that God revealed his son to Saul. And even here, Jesus is is not yet finished with revealing things to Saul. Look at what he says in in, in the next verse. Verse 6. And so Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Again, what is revealed through the Apostle Paul himself, later on in the books, book of Acts is helpful. In Acts 22.10, it informs us that Saul actually asked a question between the end of 5 and verse 6 here. That as Jesus tells him, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, Saul then says, What shall I do, Lord? And on the basis of that question, Jesus gives him this command. And tells him exactly what he should do. And yet even in telling him exactly what he should do. There's so much that he doesn't tell him. All he tells him to do is just go there. No doubt at this point Saul has to be thinking. Am I going there to be stoned? Am I going there to be crucified? Or am I just going to die? All Saul knows at this point is, is Christ's plan is to go to the city that he was planning on going to anyways. And can you imagine if Christ actually would have told him more? I believe this is God's grace in Saul's life. Imagine if Jesus had actually said, "Okay Saul, listen. Yes, I want you to go to Damascus, but after that after that you are going to be stoned more than once. You're going to be beaten You're going to be whipped. You're going to be shipwrecked. You're going to be chased out of city after city after city. In fact, you're going to be bitten by a poisonous snake. And everywhere where you go, people are going to hate you. Why? Because of my name. Because you are going to be my spokesman to the world. So go Saul, go to Damascus. And start this wonderful journey that I have for you of suffering and torture. Yes, I I am thinking that Saul was very thankful that God did not reveal everything. Jesus did not tell him everything that was going to happen to him. Instead, he just told him a little bit. And is that not the way that Christ works with you and I? If you knew what was going to happen in a year's time from now, you'd change your course. And you try to do things a little different in order to make it easier on yourself. But God's grace is sufficient unto the moment, unto that day. And so the fact that Saul doesn't know any better is is much better for him, actually, or doesn't know anything more. And as he's about to find out, even getting to Damascus is not going to be easy. As we see this, finally, that he is confounded by Christ. Look at verse 7, as we see that he's not the only one confused. If there was any confusion at this point in Saul, which I don't believe there is, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So there were others with Saul, I believe like kind of his brute squad that were going with him in order to, to do all the kind of the hard beating work to grab these believers, to put them in chains and to carry them back to Jerusalem. And yet these men, as they look and as they're involved in this whole incident, they miss it all together. It says they hear, but they don't understand. It just sounds like muffled noise. Be like you guys hearing me speak in Siawi. You don't know what it means. They don't know what this means. Why is that? Because it wasn't for them. Jesus was coming for the particular purpose and reason of calling Saul to himself, saving Saul. And and notice what it says. How it states that these men didn't see anyone. What does that imply? That implies that there was someone there to be seen. And they missed it. Consider how amazing it is that Jesus appears to Saul after his ascension. After he'd already been raised Granted, after He was raised, He appeared to many. But now we're talking about after His ascension. Jesus has only appeared to one other person, and that was the first martyr of His church. And now what does He do? In His grace, He appears to this man who is just wreaking havoc upon His church, that is bent on the destruction of His church. And so we see Saul's response. Look at verse 8. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. When it says Saul got up from the ground there, this this is actually in the passive voice, which means that that he didn't get himself up, but somebody helped him get up. He didn't even have the power nor the strength to get himself up. Wait, he's only blind, Pastor Jason. He could get himself up, up, uh, get himself up. Why didn't he? Why is Saul not able to do that? Because he was so overwhelmed. Why is he so overwhelmed? Let, let's look at verse 17 and, and, and we'll steal a little peek into what we're going to look at next week. Because I believe this is helpful. Because there is something that, that Saul sees that no one else sees. Look at verse 17. So Ananias the departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said brother saw the lord jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the holy spirit it wasn't just the light it wasn't light by itself that showed up it was a jesus christ in all of his glory and all of his splendor Revealing himself to Saul. And that is what Saul saw. And no doubt that that humbled him. That that caused him to be so overwhelmed that he couldn't even get himself up. So I believe he was overwhelmed, but I also believe he was humbled. Just think about how humbling this whole episode would have been. Because in his mind, I am sure that Saul replayed what it would look like to go into Damascus for the first time and it would look nothing like this. Right, He pictured in his mind a, a hero possibly being placed on people's shoulders and, and danced around and everybody's screaming his name. Saul, Saul is here. Yes, get those guys. And instead of him coming in and, and with all of his pride and his self-confidence and some sort of great hero, he enters into Damascus humbled and blind. A captive to the very one that he was trying to take captive of those who believed in him. See, we see that Christ had collided with him. And the whole circumstances that that he now found himself in left him mesmerized and totally confounded. And look at verse 9 as we see what he does next. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What this verse is emphasizing in the Greek isn't the fact that he for three days couldn't see. That's understood. That's a given. Why? Because God had taken the sight from him. What's being emphasized even in the Greek is this idea that he didn't eat or drink. Why? Because that was something voluntary. That was something that he didn't have to do. He could have eaten. It doesn't say anything in here that when he became blinded that the Lord somehow sealed his lips, his mouth, that he couldn't drink or eat. So why is he doing this? I believe he's doing this out of an act of worship. I believe Saul is indeed saved at this point. Look at verse 11. And we see exactly what Saul was doing. What do you think? Do you think Saul was just... Sitting back and sleeping on his couch, or on whoever's house he's at, and 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 on the couch. No, look at what he's doing. And the Lord said, "Get up." So he's speaking to Ananias. Go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. That's what Saul was doing during these three days. He was praying. He was submitting himself to the Lord. No doubt he was confessing to the Lord all the wrong things that he had done. And no doubt he was asking the Lord, what now? What do you want me to do? Where are we going to go from here, Lord? And so we see his submission and we see his obedience all the same. And I and I wonder if part of the reason why he couldn't eat or drink is because he didn't want to. Perhaps he finally got it. He finally recognized the incredible mistake that he had made. That the very Messiah of his people, the Messiah that they had been waiting for, had come and he had missed him. Not only had he missed him, but he was going around terrorizing all those that believe in him. And perhaps the weight of this just gripped his soul to such an extent that he had no desire to eat or to drink. Perhaps it even goes deeper. Notice how many days he's blinded. Three days. The same number of days that Jesus was in the tomb dead. Perhaps this is a picture of Saul dying. Saul the Pharisee dying. And Saul the Christian raising. The Apostle Paul coming in to his place. Out of these three days of darkness. As he comes out of this, and what does he do? He literally turns the world upside down for the cause of Christ. Isn't God's grace amazing? Pull back with me for a minute and just consider what Christ has done, who Christ has chased after, who Christ has pursued. Think about how far away Saul was from Christ polar opposites. And yet, was he too far for Christ to reach him? No. Can you ever be too far for Christ to reach you? No, you cannot. You can't ever be too far for God to reach you. And and let me pose one more question in closing. In these accounts, from what we see in God's Word, who seeks who? When it comes to salvation, from what we've seen in the book of Acts, who initiates salvation? Last week we saw God send someone to this Ethiopian eunuch. Did this Ethiopian eunuch even ask for someone to be sent to him? No. This was all on the part of God. This was all on the initiative of God. God sends someone to him and answers his questions and points him to Christ. Now look at Saul. Who seeks who? Clearly, Christ is seeking, pursuing, chasing after Saul. And while our salvation story, your particular testimony, probably is not quite as dramatic as Saul's here, I believe if we all take a look back at our coming to the Lord, the time when we trusted in Christ as Savior for the first time, you know what we'd all find? We'd find that it was God leading, directing, taking the initiative and pursuing us. Maybe it was through a book. Maybe it was through a friend. Maybe it was through a complete stranger that you still do not know his name. And all of that is pointing to the fact that Christ is pursuing you, that he was pursuing you. And and why do we need that? Because left to ourselves, left on our own, We'd never seek Him. We'd continue in rebellion. But God in His wonderful grace seeks us. It's not by chance that you're here this morning hearing this if you are someone that has never trusted Christ as your Savior. That today this story of Saul is your story. That today you are hearing the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Like Saul, like you, like me. Have you trusted in Him before? If you have not, Please consider. You do not know what will happen when you leave here this morning. And if you'd like to talk more with some of us about that, there'll be some of us after the service. So what can we take with us this week and and, and consider as points to ponder? Number one, consider the, the grace that Jesus showed to Saul, allowing him to be only the second person to see the risen and ascended Christ. What does this mean to you? How gracious God was towards his very enemy. How gracious Christ was towards this man who was literally trying to destroy all of the believers in Christ. And how has God revealed his grace to you? Number two, consider Christ's incredible patience with Saul. How has Christ been patient with you? Spend time this week considering the patience and kindness of Christ in your life. And thank him. For how he has dealt with you, or how he has not dealt with you, or with me, according to the way that our sins deserve. But he has lavished his grace upon us, time and time again. Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we stop and and we do, we thank you, we praise you for your matchless, wonderful grace. For you being a God who pursues us, we thank you for the account of the salvation of Saul, that you pursued him, that you chased him, that you ran after him. We pray that you would allow us to follow in the path of Saul, that we would constantly be asking you, what next? And that we would be seeking your face continually. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org That's www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.